Tonight's reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon pregnant women, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober in the dark, having put on the, sorry, excuse me. But since we belong to the day, let us not be sober. Let us be sober, Have putting, having putting on breastplate of faith and love for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time to come to your word. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you are good. Lord, that you invite us uh, to praise you. You invite us um, into your presence each and every week. We know that your presence is living and active inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we are appreciative, uh, Lord, of this special and unique time to come to your word. And so we ask that as we contemplate the truth and the encouragement and even the challenge here in this text, that you would humble our hearts and minds to receive it as good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we are moving into the last chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians, the book that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. We've been spending our series, The Good Life, in this book and we move here to the very end. We're closing up in the next few weeks this series. And if you were with us last week, you know that we began to discuss uh, the return of Christ, Jesus' return as the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica. He is writing about specific things they're struggling with, doubts, fears, uh, different kind of temptations they're facing in their city. And one of the things that we saw is that they have a lot of family and friends that are dying to persecution. And so they're, they're really struggling with the understanding and the idea of death. What happens when you die? What happens after you die? Is Jesus going to return? When is he going to return? How do we think about that? So the Apostle Paul writes to them to encourage them and to give them hope. He wants to see their lives fueled by hope so that they can actually cope with grief. And they might live out their faith authentically in the city. And he's going to continue that discussion tonight on the return of Christ. But instead of talking about the nature of Jesus' return, he's going to speak specifically about how you live in the present in light of what you believe about the future. And so I'm going to give you two shameless plugs before we get going. Here's the first shameless plug. If you're just joining us tonight or if you missed last week, you were gone for work or whatever it may be and you weren't able to listen to the sermon, you can always check them out on our podcast. That sounds like weird that I'm promoting the sermon that I preached last week, but just bear with me. Here's why. 
It's not totally uh, just simply a shameless plug. It's because a lot of you are going to have a lot of questions probably about the nature of the return of Christ. And I don't want to rehash what we talked about last week. And so if you want more information, if you want more content and more truth, you can go on iTunes or, or SoundCloud and just search Crossbridge Brickle. And you can check it out later sometime this week at your own leisure. Um, the other shameless plug is this. As Debbie announced coming up this Wednesday, we have the Getting Past Your Past event. It's going to be happening in Pipeline Workspaces where uh, we office out of as a church. And I really want to encourage you to consider coming, to skip your community group. If you have it that Wednesday night, let them know you, you can't make it. Uh, and to come, regardless of what it may be, I want to encourage you. It's not going to be some intense, uncomfortable counseling session. It's going to be really helpful practical things that can enable you to get past your past. And here's why. Tonight we're talking about future living and that what you believe about the future that affects how you live in the present, but also what you're carrying from the past affects how you live in the present. And so my encouragement to you is that if there are things in the past that are heavy, that baggage and, and lies that you've been told that you believe about yourself and whatever it may be, that you would take this opportunity to come to this workshop this coming Wednesday to get past your past so you can live well in the present. And also tonight, as we'll see, that what you believe about the future, that it might inform the way that you live here and now. You know, this question of the future is a question that every human being has asked since the beginning of time. It's one of the most foundational human questions. What happens after life? Is there eternity? What, what does that look like? What am I supposed to believe about that? One of my favorite bands of all time is the band Brand New. Do I have any Brand New fans? Oh, yes, one, yes. A lot of you probably have no idea who this band is because it's, it would probably be classified as like an emo punk rock band, but I want to let you know if you're going to check them out this week, one of the greatest bands of all time. This is like really big in the mid-2000s. They broke up this year, sadly. But it's not the uh, plug your nose and scream emo, though I was into that too. No shame, no hate. Um, this is uh, a different type of like emo, uh, more truly emotional, honest lyrics. Uh, I love this band because they're so creative. Their musicality is, is, is unbelievable, and their lyrical depth is really, really powerful. And this band isn't a Christian band. The, the lead singer of the band who writes all of the songs, he grew up going to a Christian school, but nobody would consider him a devout Christian, and he's really someone that was more of a skeptic and a seeker. And my favorite album of theirs is entitled, The Devil and God Are Raging Inside of Me. What an album title. And he writes this album in response to a breakup that he is going through. Uh, he was dating this uh, woman who was actually a singer of another very popular band entitled uh, Isley, which was an, another indie band. And they broke up. In fact, he actually proposed. That's how serious their relationship with, was, and it it kind of fell apart, and he writes this album in response to this breakup, and not simply just about her and what he's feeling, but he writes about how he feels like a failure, and he feels uh, like all these doubts and all these questions are coming into his mind because his ex-girlfriend was a very devout Christian, and this spurred in him all of these questions, and in this album, he, there's a song entitled Jesus Christ. And I want to read you a few of the lines. Here's one of them. He says this, Jesus Christ, I'm not scared to die. I'm a little bit scared of what comes after. 
And then he goes on and he ends with this bridge. And here's how the bridge goes. I know you're coming like a knight, in the night like a thief. But I've had some time, oh Lord, to hone my lying technique. I know you think I'm someone you can trust, but I'm scared. I'll get scared and I swear I'll try to nail you back up. So do you think that we could work out a sign? So I'll know it's you and it's over, so I won't even try. I know you're coming for the people like me, but we all got wooden nails and we turn out hate in factories. Every time I read that, I have goosebumps. Every time I read that, he's saying, I I, I know that you say you're coming back like a thief in the night. And I'm going to be honest, I don't really know if I'm someone that you would accept. I've honed my lying technique. I I have wooden nails, and and I'll, I'll probably try to nail you back up to that wooden tree. He says, I know that you're coming for people like me, but I'm one of those people that turn out hate in factories. You know, this, this is very evident in his life that his vision of the future is producing in him great fear. He said, I'm not scared to die, but I'm a little bit scared of what comes after, how I'm going to be treated, what's going to happen when I meet my maker. And, and this really, this fear of the future affects how he lived in the present. It affects all of us, regardless of what we think. And if we have fear of the future, it affects how we live in the present. And, and really what happens a lot of times when we're uncertain about the future, or we have it invested in thinking about the future, or we're fearful about the future, a few things can happen. One, it can cause you to kind of collapse in on yourself, which is what we see here. You just feel like a broken mess. You feel like a failure, and you feel unworthy of love especially love from God. The second would be is that when you're uncertain about the future and you're fearful about the future, you think to yourself, you know what? I just don't know if I'm ever going to figure it out. It's too much to think. It's really hard to believe. So what I'm going to do instead of being concerned about the future and thinking about the future is I'm just going to try to dictate my future. I'm going to live for myself. My anthem is going to be YOLO. I'm going to walk around saying it, you know, YOLO. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. Yo, you know what I mean? I'm just going to, I'm going to, my destiny is going to be controlled by me. My future is controlled by me. I'm going to focus on self-fulfillment and growth and progression in my life because I'm fearful of the future and I'm certain of the future. Or what happens for those of faith, and many of you feel this, when you're fearful of the future, when you're uncertain of the future, you not only feel like a failure, and you feel like you failed God, and oftentimes you struggle with receiving grace and feeling like God has actually forgiven you because you know you have wooden nails, you begin to doubt your salvation. You begin to doubt your future. And all of these things affect how you live in the present. And what Paul wants to say in the beginning of chapter 5 is that we have been called to have a vision for the future, that we are to live courageously in light of that, without fear, and instead what should be fueling our lives is faith, hope, and love. So he's going to get into that in the very first verse. Why don't you jump in with me? He says this, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You see, the church in Thessalonica was really concerned about when Jesus would return. They were wondering if they could maybe calculate the time and the season. When was it going to take place? 
That's why he says, now concerning the times and seasons. He's addressing something that they're really feeling, that they're questioning. They want to know if they can predict or maybe have an idea of when Jesus will return so they can prepare for it. You see, their life was really difficult, right? Persecution was commonplace. Injustice was commonplace. Their life was hard. They were facing many barriers, many roadblocks, many trials, and they suffered great temptation. And so they were yearning for Jesus' return because they, they realized and they believed that when Jesus returns, it's a day of salvation. It's a day of deliverance. They're going to be delivered from the suffering that they're facing in their life. And so they're writing to Paul and they're like, listen, can we like determine when it's going to happen? Can we have some kind of insight into when Jesus will return? And Paul responds, he says, I don't have to write anything else about this because you already know what Jesus said. It's already been written to you. Jesus in the book of Matthew says that when he returns, it will be like a thief in the night. Nobody will know the time or the season or the day. You can't calculate with the stars. There's nothing you can do. It will be completely unexpected. And he expands upon this in verse 3. He says, this is, while people are saying, here's when Jesus returns, people will be saying there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Jesus is going to return like a thief in the night, and you can't, I can't, no one can predict the time or the day or the season. In fact, when he returns, it will be so unexpected because so many people will be spending their lives trying to accumulate peace and security for themselves because they don't have a vision for the future. They don't know what they believe about the future. They're fearful of the future. They're uncertain of the future. So they're just living for now. And that is when Christ will return, when it's very, very unexpected. It's interesting, the analogy, right? A thief in the night. Because thieves come when you least expect it. It's always a shock. You're never expecting a thief to come to your house. In fact, when thieves come, they come at night. They're concealed by darkness so that no one can see them. Their identity is hidden. Oftentimes when thieves come, they come when you're sleeping. And many of you right now are terrified. You're thinking, I'm not going home tonight. I'm sleeping with the lights on. We're going to have a slumber party. But see, that's the intention. The intention of this analogy is to make you feel a little uneasy because it's a little bit unnerving because it's going to be a shock and it is unexpected. He says that many will be seeking to accumulate peace and security for themselves and it is in that moment when Christ will return when it's so unexpected. And we're going to discuss something because we have to that's a little bit difficult because this passage brings it up and nobody likes to discuss this, especially from the pulpit or the music stand in our case. And that is destruction and judgment because it's what Paul is speaking about here. He says there's going to be a lot of people that are fearful of the future and are uncertain about the future. And they're trying to accumulate for themselves peace and security because that's what we do. We want to alleviate fear and feel protected. And Jesus will return unexpectedly, and it will be like labor pains of a pregnant woman, meaning labor pains of a pregnant woman are not controlled by her. They come upon her when they will, and you have to just endure it. There's no escaping it. There's nothing you can do 
to remove them. And when Jesus returns, Paul is saying, that's it. There's no additional time. There's no second chances. Like when Jesus returns, he returns. There's many different ways that it's said in Scripture, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, Jesus' return. So we said last week, the parousia. When Christ comes back, there is no escape. You fall on one of two sides, the side of belief or the side of unbelief. And this is a difficult topic to discuss, but it's interesting what we see all throughout the Council of Scripture, which is this. When Jesus returns, you get what you desire. You see, if you've lived your life, we saw this last week as Paul looks at all of those who have placed their faith in Christ in years prior that have died before the return of Christ, that regardless of when you lived, if you put your faith in Christ, if your desire is for Jesus and his kingdom, then when Jesus returns, you get Jesus and his kingdom. But if you have denied Christ or rejected Christ and been concerned with accumulating peace and security for yourself and you wanted nothing to do with God and Jesus and his kingdom, then when Jesus returns, you get what you desire, which is an eternity and a life apart from Christ and his kingdom. That's what the Bible calls hell. C.S. Lewis wisely said this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. There's two types of people. Those who have placed their faith in Christ and are saying to God, thy will be done, and those who are saying, I'm going to I'm going to be about my own will. And God says to them, okay, thy will be done. You see, many, many people will live their lives and will completely reject Jesus Christ. Many people will live their lives and they won't concern themselves with belief and questions of the future and questions of Jesus and his return and salvation and who God is because they feel as if it's more important to focus on now. It's more important important to, to grow your career and develop relationships and enjoy the moment, then think about the most important questions of life. Many people will be manipulated by other false religions and false belief systems, and many people will sit in the church and assume the label of Christian, but Jesus is not their savior. Jesus is a role model. He's someone that you take a few values from to improve your life, and what is true of all of the people that reject Christ or deny Christ in many different ways is that we do that as people to feel safe by accumulating peace and security for ourselves. The Apostle Paul is saying that when Jesus returns, it will be unexpected and it will be a shock. It will be a day of joy and deliverance and salvation for those who have placed their faith in Christ and for those who have denied Christ, they will get what they desire, which is a life and an eternity separate from God. That's what we see here. And so Paul is looking at the church, and he's saying to the church, I want you to stay awake. I want you to continue to live with a sense of urgency. I want you to prepare for the unexpected. Remember the analogy. The analogy is that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. See, we as people are people that prepare for the unexpected. That's why we have home security systems. We have the motion sensor lights. We have locks on our doors. We prepare for the unexpected. 
We don't know when the thief is going to come, so we're going to prepare for it. Many of you are feeling grateful that you live in a condo or an apartment. That's probably why you live in a condo or an apartment, because you don't want to live in a house, because that's terrifying. You want to have the elevator with the fob, and you want the whole thing, you know. But we prepare for the unexpected. And see, Paul's urging here, and what we're going to see as he develops in this passage, is that we are not to prepare for the unexpected out of fear, because we're fearful of what's going to happen at the end of time, at the end of days. We know what's going to happen, and we know it's a day of victory and joy. And so instead of preparing out of fear, we're to prepare out of hope, with faith and love, expectantly, with a sense of urgency. And so here's what Paul says in verses 4 through 6 and 7. As he says, this is what it looks like to prepare. This is how you, you live for the future. He says, remember that you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're not to be surprised. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You see, the Apostle Paul is writing here. He's saying, yes, Jesus is going to return like a thief in the night. It's going to be unexpected, but it should, it should not be a shock because you've prepared because you know what you believe. You don't have fear of the future. There's hope in the future. Remember, he says, that you're children of the light. You're children of the day. You're no longer, you used to be children of darkness, children of the night, but you are no longer that. He's saying here that future living keeps you awake. I'm pretty sure this is the first reference in all of history to being woke. That's what it means to be woke right here. If you are wondering, you hear people say woke. That's what it has to do. Future living is staying woke. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You see, he's positioning here that, right? He, he's saying that you're, you're to, to stay awake, to have a vision, because you're a child of the day. You're a child of the light. He's positioning light versus darkness and day versus night. And what he's doing there is he's wanting you to see that you're not supposed to live in the present how you used to live in the past because you believe something different about the future. What you believe about the future should change how you live in the present because you no longer live how you used to live in the past. You used to be of the darkness and of the night, but now you are a child of light. You have vision. You can see so it's, it's interesting, this contrast that he places here, because what happens when you're in complete darkness is that your vision is removed. You cannot see. When you try to navigate your way through darkness, you can only navigate through sound and through touch, because your, your vision has been removed. Remember when I was a kid, I was playing hide-and-go-seek. It's one of my favorite games ever. And we were playing at my friend's house, and I think this may be like one of the first editions of the blackout shutters. And so they had the blackout shutters in the whole house, and we literally could not see your hand in front of your face. And I'm mildly competitive. And uh, some of you know me, you know that's, uh, I'm underselling that. And I, I thought to myself, I'm going to find the best hiding spot of all time. Like, I'm, when they say the game's over, you know, I'm just going to stay. I'm going to stay in this spot every single game and I knew that there was this cabinet in the living room, and the cabinet was like, it was like high ceilings, and that there was a space up there. And I thought to myself, I can climb up there. There's no way someone's going to find me when you cannot see your hand in front of your face, and I'm on top of a cabinet 10 feet up. So it's pitch black, 
And I begin to climb up this cabinet, and I'm feeling, does that feel safe? That feels safe. And I'm kind of listening to where people are, and I'm making my way up the cabinet. And I get near the top, and I know I have some space between the roof. And so I'm like, I'm just going to hop up on top of the cabinet, and when I get up there, I'll just lay down. Maybe I'll sleep. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm in the best spot ever. So I get to the top, and I jump up, and when I jump up, I nail my nose on a corner of the roof because what I didn't know, because I did not investigate the room well enough, is that it was not a 90-degree angle roof. This family was trying to be artistic, and so they had a little bump-out corner thing that had an edge on it. And so when I jump, went up, my nose hit the corner, and I started whimpering like a dog <laughs> because I broke my nose, and I had blood dripping down my face. Can you imagine what it was like when I was like telling them, turn the lights on, I need help, and they turn the lights on. I'm 10 feet up in a cabinet <laughs> with blood dripping down my face. Needless to say, I don't play hide-and-go-seek anymore, and I don't play in pitch-black darkness <laughs> You see, when you're navigating the darkness, you have no vision. You can't see. You have to judge everything based upon how, what feels safe and feels good and what sounds safe and what sounds good. And this is a really dangerous way to live because when you live like this, it's inevitable that you're going to break your nose sometimes, that you're going to fall, you're going to trip, you're going to get bumps, you're going to get bruises because you cannot see where you're going. And, and, and even if you try to navigate very carefully through your life, when you have no vision, you're going to fall. You see, this is the allure of sin, right? When all of us, for those of you here that are, are, are people of faith, you know what it's like to live based upon what sounds good and what feels good. This is what we hear all the time. Just do what feels good. We follow after things that sound good. And when you live in darkness and you remove your vision, that sounds like the best way of navigating the world. If it sounds good, if it feels good, I'm going to go for it. But it will bring destruction. You will fall. You will trip. You will get bloodied because you cannot see where you're going. And Paul is saying here, church, you are children of the light. You have vision. Use your vision. Do not live how you used to live, where you just lived your life based upon what sounded good and what felt good. You are people of the day. You're to live differently. He, lay, he drills this down with another illustration in verses 6 and 7. He says, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, last week, if you were with us, you know that I said... There's a common euphemism that was uh, used throughout the day, not simply in scripture, but in Greek literature and Latin literature, and that was those who fall asleep, which means those who have died. It's another way of saying, like we say, those who have passed on. Well, here, this is a different word for sleep. It's a totally different Greek word. This one means actually sleep, like close your eyes and go to sleep. So Paul is contrasting here again, those who are awake, who have their eyes open, and those who are asleep who have their eyes closed, or those who are sober and have a clear mind versus those who are drunk and their judgment is clouded. He's making the same comparison. He's saying, remember that you're children of the light. You're to keep your eyes open and you're to have a sober mind, a clear mind. Because the opposite is true. When you live in darkness, 
when you live your life, life based upon what sounds good and what feels good, you live without vision. You live asleep with your eyes closed. And you live as if you're drunk. Meaning you have no restrictions. Your inhibitions are gone. And when you're drunk, you do just what sounds good and feels good in the moment. Because discernment has been taken out. And he's saying, church, you are children of the light. You have your eyes open. Use your vision. You have the ability to analyze and to think and to have discernment in how you live. Use that. Stay awake. And the question, I think, that, that jumps out from this text as you're reading it, as he's speaking about future living, and he's saying, keep your eyes open. Be awake. Be sober-minded. Remember that you're children of the light. Don't live how you used to live. Live with vision. The question is, how do you do that? How do you live with vision? What does future living look like? He gives us that. He says in verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us live sober, because this is who we are. Here's how we do that. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now see, the breastplates that would have been common in this time that a soldier would have worn was either like chain mail that was metal that would have covered their body to protect them, or they would have made it out of horse hooves. Sorry for all the horse fans. I want to imagine that the horses were dead when they took the hooves, but they took the horse hooves and they made them into scales. So if you wore this chain mail, this breastplate, it was the scale-like metal or scale-like uh, kind of covering made out of hooves. And then the helmet was a metal helmet to protect your head. And he's saying, I want you to put on this scale-like breastplate and this helmet. The helmet of hope and the breastplate of faith and love. And this is not the first time that the Apostle Paul actually speaks about this armor that you're to put on. He speaks about it in his letter to the church in Ephesus, and he says that we're to put on the full armor of God. And he speaks about a breastplate there as well and a helmet. But there's a difference between the two texts. You see, here he says that the breastplate is of faith and love and the helmet is of hope. But in the other letter, he says that the breastplate is the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. So the question is, why does he make an adjustment? Why does he change it? You see, what we see here in this letter is that he's referencing a passage, almost verbatim, all the way back in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah writes about God's armor and how God puts on his armor. And he says that God puts on his armor the breastplate of righteousness that produces faith and love and the helmet of salvation that produces hope. You see, he's wanting to say a few things here. One, he's saying that the armor that you're going to put on is God's armor. It's not your armor. It's God's armor that produces faith and love and hope. So this helmet is God's helmet, and this breastplate is God's breastplate. And so he, he begins to make this connection. And when you put these passages all together, it really comes out to be something beautiful because we're supposed to read the counsel of Scripture together. You see, because he tells us that the breastplate is the breastplate of righteousness, and this is God's armor, what he's saying here is that when you put on the righteousness of God, it produces faith and love. 
And when you put on the helmet of salvation, that is God's helmet, God's salvation, it produces hope. And so how do you put on the armor of God? Well, you look to the righteousness of God and the salvation of God because it is, in fact, his armor. You can't look to your own righteousness. You can't say, I'm just going to try to to live better. I'm going to be about good works. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to perform better for God, and that's going to somehow produce faith and love in me. No, no, no. This is God's armor. So you look to the righteousness of God. How do you put on the helmet of hope? Well, you don't look to your own salvation as if you're capable of saving yourself. You look to the salvation that God gives you through Christ. So the way that you put on this armor, that you be about future living, that you have a vision for how you live, is that you look to Jesus. You live for Jesus. You look to his righteousness that you put on, his salvation offered to you that you put on, and what it produces in you is faith hope, and love. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Look what he says in verse 9 and 10. Immediately following, he says, just remember this, God has not destined us for wrath. Your vision is not for wrath. Your future is not of wrath. But to obtain salvation through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Meaning, Whether we are awake when Christ returns or we have fallen asleep, this is that other Greek word meaning we have died before Christ returns, that we will be with him, that we will live with him. You see, what he's saying here is that Christ has died for you so that you might live with him and for him. It's both that you might rest assured this is how you, you see hope produced in your life when you remember that your salvation that comes through Christ's death on the cross and his payment of your sin produces hope in you because you have no fear of the future. You're not uncertain about the future. You know that you have received the grace and the forgiveness of God because of Christ's death, because of his salvation offered to you. And so you can live with hope, with expectancy, because there's no fear. You know that you're going to be with Christ alongside of everybody that has passed on before you and those that come after you. We will walk arm in arm together into eternity with God. We will get what we desire. But we're not only called to be, live expectantly because we know that we're going to be with Christ, but we're called to live for Christ, which is where the breastplate comes in. See, the hope reminds us of our future, There's no fear of what is ahead, but the breastplate reminds us of how to live now with faith and love. And this is a difficult one because you think to yourself, that's really hard to live a life of faith and love, right? Life is hard. It's difficult. I face many barriers and many obstacles. I struggle with different pressures and anxiety and stress. It is hard to stand firm in my faith when there's so many different attacks and ridicule and things that are always piling up on me, it's hard to stand strong in faith. And it is also hard to love people. It's hard to love myself. It's hard to love others when you're constantly tempted, when you're constantly being told, live based upon what sounds good and feels good. It's hard to live with a vision of the future that produces faith and love. So how do I do that? I understand that you said, look to Jesus, but how does that produce faith and love? Notice 
that the armor, as I said, is the armor of God. Listen to the description, right? Because what you're putting on is God's armor. It's Christ's armor. It's his righteousness. And remember what it looks like. The armor is covered in scales. It would cover the majority of your body, and so you would have looked as if you were covered in scales. So Jesus put on an armor that looks as if he's covered in scales. And all throughout Scripture, we're told that the one who's wanting to constantly bring you from the light into the darkness, to live based upon what sounds good and feels good, to be about accumulating peace and security for yourself here and now, don't worry about the future. Who cares about the future? Just focus on you. He is a liar and he's a tempter, and his name is Satan. And he's told that he's represented as a snake. And snakes are covered in what? Scales. You see, the armor that is Christ's righteousness is covered in scales. You see, Jesus' death for you was not just like a nice gesture. It wasn't just some arbitrary plan of salvation where God was like, I think like a death on a cross kind of thing. It's going to be great. You see, what we believe about Jesus' death is that he took your curse of sin. He took your wrath. He took your scales. He took it all. And he paid for it. The letter to the Galatian church says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, when Jesus went to the cross for you, he took your past, he took your sin, he took your shame and your guilt, all of those decisions where you've been tempted by Satan, who is scale-like, the serpent, all of those thoughts, all those decisions to live based upon what feels good and looks good and sounds good, Christ has taken it all and paid for it as he's actually placed your curse upon him. He has crushed the head of Satan. And so when you look to Jesus and when you put on the breastplate of Christ, which is his righteousness, what are you reminded of? You're reminded that your past and your wrath and your shame, and your guilt, it is all paid for. It is done. You are no longer a child of night and of darkness. You have the righteousness of Christ given to you because he took the curse from you. It's done. You can live with faith and love even when you fail. Yes, we all in this room have wooden nails, and we turn out hate in factories, but Christ has allowed himself. He's willingly given himself to take our curse by being nailed to that tree. And through faith in him, the good news of the gospel is that you can live with faith and love and hope because you know your future. It's not uncertain. There's no fear. You can live with a sense of urgency and expectedness. There's a great quote by William Faulkner, the author. He says this, you cannot swim for new horizons until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. You see, what Paul is getting at here, that the way to live for the future, the way to be about future living, is to stop looking behind you. Stop looking at your past and your baggage and your sin and your failures and your mistakes and your shame and your guilt. That's all been paid for by Christ. You have his righteousness now. 
You have his salvation. So live with faith and hope and love. Swim ahead with courage. Paul ends and he says to all of us that we are to encourage each other and build one another up with these words. We need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel because that is how you live for the future in the present. Will you pray with me? God, we are unworthy of your love and your forgiveness, but yet you have offered it to us, Jesus, by placing our faith in you and receiving the grace that we know we don't deserve. We are people that have wooden nails and we turn out hate. We're fearful that we would nail you back up to that tree because we know that that is in our sinful DNA. But may we be reminded that the good news of the gospel is that you have taken away our curse and our sin and our shame and our guilt and our past and you have done away with it. It is no more that we can live in light of that future, that eternity with you, that we can have hope in the present, that we can live with faith even when we feel weak, that we can love others even when we struggle with loving ourselves and we struggle with receiving your love. Would you build that up in us through the truth of your word, the good news of the gospel, and may we be a church that encourages one another to live in the light with our eyes awake, with a vision for the future, not living just based upon what sounds good and feels good, but with a clear mind, with sober thinking, knowing that following after you is the best life. We leave the shore and swim ahead to our eternal destiny with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.